0: Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz.
1: And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we'll be speaking with Dr. Melissa Davis. But first, we'd like to check in on hot topics in health and healthcare. care. And, and Harlan, I know there's a topic that got you really uh, interested, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on it.
0: Well, there are two quick topics I wanted to hit on, Howie, and I'm curious what you think about them. The first is this reported thing with RFK Jr., you know, a, a oh. famously anti-vaccine yeah. individual, and he was quoted as saying that the, the the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the COVID-19 virus, was designed to spare Chinese and Ashkenazi Jews, and this was yeah. reported in the New York Post. And I, I don't want to get into a, 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 any sort of discussion, particularly about this, of course it has a lot of issues that we could be just talking about. But the one thing that was on my mind, howie, was, how do I know when I read something like that, that it's true? Because it's so outrageous. I mean, it it, it literally, you can't believe that someone like RFK Jr. would be capable in a group of saying something like that. So someone says, I've got a recording of it. But as you know, now in an AI world, anybody can simulate a voice. In fact, there's a movie about Will Chamberlain that, 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 They've said in the movie, what we did was we did an AI replication of his voice. So when we say things that he was reported to have said, you will hear it as if it's coming from Wilt. So Will Chamberlain, a famous basketball player, we're capable of, of doing this now. And I'm, I was thinking how when I first read it, I didn't even want to retweet about it because I thought maybe I'm being trapped. This has to be crazy. Yeah. But then New York Times comes out and, and affirms it. The Wall Street Journal comes out and affirms it. So we could talk for a long time about that quote. But I think we're in a world, Howie, where like, I be, I'm realizing for myself that I'm nervous about what's information, what's misinformation, and that, of course, there are people who will say crazy things. But how do I know it's true? Like, What am I looking for? How are you thinking about this?
1: But I do think this emphasizes why the, the, the journalism, why the, what do they call it, the fourth estate, um, is so critical. Because if you have credible journalists in the room, if you have people reporting real time, no longer do you have to rely on just recordings or videos. You actually have reporters who have journalistic integrity imp- reporting. And on- honestly, even that has been undermined a lot by the AI revolution, because a lot of companies are laying off journalists and replacing them with AI-generated content. And we're gonna have to, as a society, make a decision, much as our guest uh, this afternoon will talk about, you gotta commit money to something if you want it
0: to really work. We're going to need these guardrails, because especially as we come up to the election, but in all aspects of public health as well. Yep. You know, you'll have to wonder, did somebody really say that or not? Is that really true? Yeah, it's It's hard. Let me get to the second one, too, because I know this is something that interests you. And I just I, I'm I'm being greedy this week by taking two topics. But there was an article that came out from our friend Zeke Emanuel, who we've had on this program and Robert Berenson, a, a really a, a, a a deep expert in health policy and healthcare about the Medicare physician fee schedule. And and I just thought it was a really nice piece about sort of illuminating some of these issues that we're, we're talking about with regard to incentivizing the right behaviors within medicine. And they really, I think, bring into bright relief this idea that the current system is just paying for volume and it, it even rewards inefficient, poor quality care that may not even be benefiting health. So you know, it's sort of like a restaurant that, you know, it, they're just being rewarded for the volume of food they put out without regard to the quality of it. Now, for food, people can actually tell, do I like this or not? But for healthcare, most patients are in a very poor position to be able to judge this. And then moreover, they're, they're bringing in this issue that there is this thing within Medicare where doctors get together and say, how long does it take to do something and, and how intensive is it? So doctors are kind of judging themselves in this respect. And, and they bring up this example of of cardiologists estimating that it takes six minutes uh, to interpret an electrocardiogram when yeah. all of us in cardiology know that the vast majority of electrocardiograms are read by machine. We're just signing on top of the read and maybe it takes us, you know, 10 or 15 seconds to do. Now, there's an occasional one that'll take a long time, but, but the average of six minutes is definitely not true. But that's coming from a board of doctors who's Who's trying to assign a certain amount to them. All my cardiology colleagues are going to be mad at me for exposing this, but it's it's everywhere. It's not just, I mean, you have it in radiology, we have it everywhere. Yeah.
1: Oh, radiology, it's the same thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, and, and look, I you know I remember about 15 years ago, you and I went to the White House and we sat around the table and talking about healthcare reform with people who are really leaders in the field about what we can do in terms of Obamacare. I guess it was 2009, so 14 years ago. And um, everybody talked about this movement of that volume to value, volume to value. It was the talking point of the decade. And you know, several years later, when I realized in our own practice, where I play a role in the financial management of our practice, I realized we were doing almost nothing based on value. It was still all on volume. So I started asking people, like, are we moving to value because I'm not seeing it? And everybody would wave their hands and say, of course, of course. But what they really meant is one percent or half a percent of their revenue was truly at risk of value. Everything else was still about volume. And here we are now, 14 years since you and I sat uh, in the Eisenhower building of the White House complex for that meeting, and I'm not sure we've made any meaningful movement. We've had some areas where things have been proven and work, but overall, we're all about volume, and until we change the incentives, we're not going to change that pattern.
0: And it's going to be a setup for discussion for all the new innovations that that are going to come down the pike. If it's just volume without regard to selection of people to benefit, it's going to be going to be an issue. Hey, so let's get on to our segment. Melissa Davis today.
1: Take it away, Howie. Dr. Melissa Davis is the Vice Chair for Medical Informatics and Associate Professor in the Department of Radiology and Biomedical Imaging at the Yale University School of Medicine and the Medical Director of System Radiology Imaging Informatics at Yale New Haven Health. Her research focuses on patient service, process optimization in ambulatory and inpatient environments to improve medical outcomes and innovative ideas to target social determinants of health. Before taking up her current positions, Dr. Davis was an assistant professor of radiology and physician lead of the Yale Clinical Optimization Services. She was chief of emergency radiology and the clinical lead for the Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation at the Yale Medical School, which Harlan Krumholtz, our partner in crime here, directs. She also briefly worked for Emory, and supported the company Nines Radiology as an advisor to the clinical operations. Dr. Davis graduated from Wellesley as a psychology and chemistry major and later obtained an MD from the Medical University of South Carolina. She was a resident in diagnostic radiology as well as a fellow in neuroradiology at UNC Chapel Hill and joined Yale in 2017 to pursue and complete her MBA, which is when I had the first a great privilege to meet her. So first of all, I want to welcome you to the Health and Veritas podcast, Melissa Davis, uh, my friend, colleague, and uh, vice chair. Um, And I want to start off because, you know, about a year and a half ago, Harlan and I had a a conversation about assistive technologies in radiology, specifically how AI is influencing practice. Um, But this is what you do, you manage the implementation and practice of AI within radiology. And I want you to just give our listeners a little taste of what are the AI applications that are currently being used, and what do you see coming down the pike in the near future?
2: Yeah, so I want to start by saying thank you so much for allowing me to spend some time with you all on this podcast today. It's uh, I've been listening to you all since the inception, and it's you have some amazing people on here, so I'm glad to be a part of that. Who
0: do you think is better, me or Howie?
2: I can answer that, Harlan. <laughs> That's a trick you can question. Just,
0: just whisper into my ear who you think is best. That's it.
2: <laughs> that was true. Um, you're right. Um, assistive technologies within medicine, as well as radiology, have expanded significantly, even over the past year and a half, since you all did uh, that initial podcast on on these types of technologies. Um, there are a variety of them. When you talk about radiology specifically, a lot of times we talk about uh, augmentation and segmentation type of tools. And those are tools that allow us to actually allow the AI to actually look at an image and determine something off of there. So what we use at Yale is are our, our several of these types of tools. We can do things like detect head bleeds. Um, we can detect emboli, which are clots in your in your lungs, uh, based off of that. Uh, we could also look for things like a pneumothorax, our error it's not supposed to be in your lungs. And so that's just a small sampling of the types of tools that we've started to use within our space, uh, within the radiology department. But even beyond that, there are other tools out there that are not like that that we typically see in the in the media. Um, there are tools that actually help us with communication. For instance, there's tools that if I dictate a report and I say, you know, there is a right-sided pneumothorax on this chest X-ray, we can get an auto impre- auto-generated impression based off of that. And that helps the radiologist speed up their work, but it also helps decrease that cognitive load of having to rehash something that they've already said. So there's these non, um, non-diagnostic tools that are also coming into this space that we're starting to look more and more at as well.
0: So I'm so happy to be on the program with two extraordinary radiologists and an expert in AI. And, and actually, Howie's really growing to be an expert in AI as well. I'm just growing. Not like you at all. I
2: was like, yeah, you guys know more about <laughs> this than me. <laughs> no.
0: no, come on. And so... For our listeners, they may know that Vinukh Khosla, a, a very well-known investor, said, I don't know, maybe five or 10 years ago that he thought AI was going to replace doctors. And and the place where people have thought about this maybe being most likely applied would be in a place like radiology or pathology, where there's a lot of pattern recognition and not, not counting the interventional radiologists who we've you know, had the pleasure of talking with Dr. Shapiro recently and, and you know talking about these issues but but for the pattern recognition and I just wonder if you could tell me what you, you know how how do you think about this because in in some ways I think that it's at least possible that we could have each radiologist be able to to do more with some sort of performance augmentation with AI but in many cases in places in the world where there just aren't enough specialists available that we could have access to these kind of expert systems that could help people on the battlefield even, for example, where you know it may be hard for radiologists to be present. Now you could have command centers, but also with the AI. Do you see this happening? I mean, what do you think it's going to look like in 20 or 30 years as this technology continues to advance?
2: Yeah, I think that there is a, a short-term look and there is a long-term look at this. And I think that these types of technologies are so transformative, not only within healthcare, but within society that we're gonna to have to rethink the way that many of our jobs look. And I don't think that it's just radiology or pathology. I think we're gonna to have to relook at what does general medicine look like as well um, and other types of specialties uh, going forward. I think that there is a space to help um, increase access to radiology by leveraging these types of technologies. And we've actually started to see some of that across the world where maybe we implement a technology that, shall, that prioritizes acuteness, essentially. And so for a radiologist who is sitting in a country where maybe they're the only radiologist, I've been to a couple of countries where there's one or two radiologists for the entire country, We need to prioritize what actually needs to be seen by that radiologist as opposed to what doesn't need to be seen as quickly. So a mass that needs to be seen or some sort of uh, acute pathology that needs to be seen and needs to be transferred over more quickly.
0: And just one quick follow-up to this, just to this point in time, just talking about today, have you seen anything in your field with AI that has blown your mind? Have you seen anything that you said like, whoa, that is incredible?
2: The first time that I saw AI detect any pathology, I was like, "Whoa, that's incredible!" Because that is not something that I had seen ever before. Um, it's becoming more commonplace now um, because it's been a couple of years since we've seen. And what
0: it. what did you see? One
2: of the biggest so a head bleed. That's the first platform that we had at Yale. And the story behind this is actually what what gave the woe, is that we had implemented it. Um, we were running it on all of our patients who got head CT scans. We had a patient who came in at 5 p.m. to get an outpatient head scan for pain. Those are images that we would never read um, after 5. Our outpatient radiologists go home at that point. It was flagged. Our radiologist saw it, made sure the patient didn't leave, got that patient treated ASAP. That patient could have gone home and had a very bad outcome. And so that, even though I saw the technology and I was like, whoa, When I had that story, I was like, that is actually amazing in what we're trying to do.
1: And and to Melissa's point, just want to add like, there's two elements to it. One is that it's an assistance in terms of an extra set of eyes, so to speak. But it also, as you mentioned, uh, prioritizes cases so that when you're in the emergency room and you're 30 minutes behind in cases, which frequently happens during high volume states, if you have a pulmonary embolus patient move to the top of the list instantly because the AI technology decided that it's positive, that can have an impact. As you know, Harlan, and, and so much of your work has informed the timeliness of treatment in patients, the fact that we can advance diagnosis by even 30 minutes can be important. So
0: one of the questions I've been asking people is, how do you know what to trust? Because You know, vendors are coming out and saying, hey, we've got this. It's this amazing new thing. You've observed something great, but how do you you know you can start to rely on it?
2: Yeah, and and that's something I actually think about a lot. It's not even trust as you bring it in, but trusting it five years later or 10 years later when we know that these algorithms degrade in some capacity. Is it still going to work going forward? So what we do is we do a lot of validation before we onboard a platform to make sure that there's some clinical trust within it. This is also why I don't think that radiologists are going to be replaced soon. I think radiologists who leverage this technology will be better radiologists. So you'll you'll want that. But it's really going to come down to that clinical determination if you, if you trust it or not because there are several times throughout the day where to flag something as a false positive. So meaning that it says that there's something there, I look at it and it's not it's something else. It's like a calcification rather than a bleed. Are something on the periphery that it thinks it caught, but is not there. So these technologies are not perfect. And a lot of us are aware of that, which is why we're very cautious about the, the pre-implementation piece of that. But as we go forward, we're gonna have to think about how much, how well do they remain at their job going forward? Do they get worse at their job as our populations change based off the training data set that was there before, or as the algorithm itself changes going forward?
1: I, don't, I, I want to come back to AI if we have time at the end, but I also don't want to forget to mention that you are a graduate of our EMBA program. And uh, this is a podcast that we, we've been doing from the School of Management from the beginning. Um, and I think the EMBA played a significant role in your career, but I'd love to hear what specifically, what are the things that happened between the time I met you when you arrived on campus and I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, like July of 2015?
2: Uh, 2015. Yeah.
1: 15. Yeah. 2015 when you arrived on campus. Um, and when you graduated and you were working in radiology the whole time, but a lot of things changed for you during that time. What courses, what content actually were most important to you and how did they inform your current vision of healthcare delivery?
2: Yeah, well, I'm just going to take a step back because I know you asked about specific courses and content, but howie you were a major i don't need
1: Yeah, Uh, i appreciate
2: coming in like if i say like the number one person who has impact on my career is Howie Gorman.
1: so i appreciate that but harlan already super howie harlan (laughs) already praises me enough and we don't you know (laughs) but i appreciate that very much but but he is extraordinary he's extraordinary
2: well I, i think it leads into my next point which is that um mentorship and sponsorship are very important and uh, especially for somebody like me, who's, who was new at Yale, I didn't know anybody when I landed. I was really just trying to figure out why this campus was so much larger than the one I had been on before and how I could get from the business school to the hospital, to my home, you know, always getting lost trying to get home the first couple of months. Um, but uh, that having somebody who was willing to mentor me and then later sponsor me into roles actually accelerated the path that I went on. So when I started uh, the MBA uh, program, I really thought that I wanted to do some sort of organizational management type of change process, uh, leadership process, things like that. But I didn't really have an idea of where it would be. Um, Going through the MBA program really expanded my view of healthcare. Uh, When you're in medical school, you're just learning anatomy, you're learning the basics. You go into residency, and it's very much tunnel vision on understanding your specialty. I didn't understand how we get paid. I didn't understand how hospitals worked. I didn't understand quality measurement, and that's Harlan's space. I, uh, you know, I joined Core while I was a fellow. That's right. Um, as well, um, I didn't understand startup culture. Um, and how a lot of these technologies are actually being built outside of academia and in these spaces like Silicon Valley and how that's gonna impact healthcare. And so, and I didn't understand finance. Uh, and so taking courses that aligned with those things really opened my mind um, when it comes to healthcare in general. And so I feel like I got a bigger overview and, and I could see the bigger picture going forward.
0: Just wonder if you think all medical students should get more exposure to these things.
2: Absolutely. I think that medical students are at a disadvantage with that with that tunnel vision that, that they're given. And I wish that we could incorporate that into their education a bit more, for sure. You
0: know, one thing I wanted to ask you while we, while we have you here is I know that you have a deep commitment to and interest in health equity and, and how how we're going to address this within the healthcare system. We've been doing a lot of research and really basically showing that over the last decades, we're not making any progress, That that for all the Rhetoric and and for some of the investments, you know, it's not returning uh, efforts. Now I don't know the counterfactual. I don't know if things would have even gotten worse than they are, but they're certainly not getting better. And I just wonder what what you're thinking. Are some of the central strategies we should be thinking about that are new because the old ways of doing things just aren't aren't standing up to what what they need to do? So uh, what are what are you thinking now that that we should be doing?
2: So. Uh- Yes, health equity is, is a passion of mine, and it's something that over my career, I've gotten more and more involved in. When I think about health equity, I think you're completely right. Like There are things that we have tried to do, and we've not really moved the needle that much. But I also think about the fact that we are actively kind of dismantling some of that, which probably kept us at par as well when we, come, when we think about it from a societal level. So, for instance, you know the, new, the Supreme Court ruling around affirmative action, we know that if Black doctors are present in Black communities, those patients do better. But we know that with this type of a ruling, it's going to be more difficult for Black doctors to be creative, essentially. It's going to be more difficult for them to get into college. It's going to be more difficult for them to get into medical school. It's more going to be more difficult for them to get involved in specialties and subspecialties, especially. Radiology does a terrible job at diversity. Um, And so it's gonna be more, we're not gonna see as many doctors that look like me who are radiologists going forward because of actions like this. So, you know, at this point, I think that it's it's imperative that we look at it from a policy angle um, and say that there are things that we need to do and we need to stop some sort of change, some of these changes so that we don't go backwards, to be honest, so that we can continue at the field that we're in and then we need to figure out how we can actually push people forward who we, knew, who we know will actually uh, care about this. And that means that you need to tackle students when they are in high school, when they're in middle school. We need to focus there, get them interested in it, get them aware of it so that they can also always move forward. And I don't know if that's so novel, but it's things that we know will work, but we just don't do well.
1: I think I asked a similar question of Elizabeth Arleo when she was on a few months ago, but radiology does have a relatively poor record, putting it lightly, of diversity in terms of ethnicity and race, um, and diversity in terms of gender. I mean, it's grossly underrepresented among women uh, and among people of color, uh, and this has gone on for a very long time. And I feel, and I may be wrong, so I'm just stating this, and you can correct me, but I feel like you were almost dragged into being involved in this because there is such a shortage of people of color and women of color in radiology that you had to get involved because it was just demanded of you basically by the specialty. But what, and correct me, say what, you know, tell me the real story, but it is true that right now you are very actively involved in trying to advance this cause. But tell me more about what can we do and what can we do better, because this exists at Yale, it exists nationally, it is not going away. And I've watched it for 30 years and spoken about it for 30 years, and it's not been improving much, as Harlan said, about health equity.
2: One one program that I think is doing really well at this is the ACRP mm-hmm. program, and that's run by Michelle Johnson, who's on our faculty at Yale. yes. There is a significant positive impact for students who go through that program. Um, their attrition rate in the radiology is very, very high. And so that program targets first and second year med students who are interested in radiology or the radiological sciences. They tag them to a mentor, um, get them a project over the summer, and then they go through coursework uh, through it. So they get really immersed in that. Those types of programs aren't necessarily scalable, but they're very impactful for the for the people that they that they come to. We have to put dollars behind that. A lot of times, we try to do work for free. We try to get volunteers. We we don't incentivize it essentially. And so, if you really want something like that to get bigger, you have to fund it. And we don't actually fund diversity efforts. We talk about diversity. We talk about how we want it. We talk about the things that we're going to do. But when it comes to the dollars in the sense that it requires in order to put those things in place, we actually don't do it. So the first thing I would say is set aside money and put a lot of money into it in order to do it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I do want to say, like, for people that may be listening who have not chosen a career yet, you are the epitome of sort of the quadruple threat because you have been steadily publishing. You are an exceptional teacher. You are a great administrator, and you are one of the best clinical radiologists I know. Um,
0: what and a and a and a kind and collaborative person. I think Cowie, you true. know, that's a that's the kind of role model, that kind of generosity of spirit, that like you know, uh, in more. terms of people that you work with, and I I really think that's what we want to try to. A good point. Uh, emulate and and spread, right? Spread that kind of spirit. And, that no, that's you a have great Melissa, point. Which is but, just but so I, wonderful.
1: I want to know though, like of those four things, what surprises you the most today that you might not have thought about ten years ago when you entered radiology, or twelve years ago, whenever that was.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean that's easy. I never thought I'd be an academic. Um, <laughs> I was, that was not my path. Um, I, I went, I was heavily going into private practice. I had mapped it all out and I was going wow. to get go this MBA and then go, you know, become a partner in a practice somewhere and, you know, rake in the dollars essentially.
1: <laughs> but oh, we, we are lucky we got you. Even if you're not able to rake in the dollars, we're lucky we have you here.
2: No, but this was, I am very grateful for the path that I've been on and the doors that have been opened from it. This is a much more, um this is much more lucrative actually because when at the end of your life you're not going to think about dollars you're going to think about impact and i feel like the type of career that i was able to choose uh will lead lead me with at least some sort of impact or to be surrounded by people who have great impact every day like like you and you and harlan okay.
1: thank you very much for being here we just we're so yeah, it's lucky wonderful to have, to have you. you on the
0: show thank, thank you. you so much wow that was a terrific terrific session and She's just an amazing member of our faculty. I'm so glad we could have her on the show. Yeah, Yeah, So Howie, let's get to another favorite part of the show for me, which is to hear what's on your mind
1: this week. Yeah. So there's been a lot of news. And by the way, like this is a a topic that is more something that you would talk about because it's based on a journal article on science, but it's really at heart a big policy issue as well. Uh, There's been a lot of news about Uh, Alzheimer's treatment uh, in the last few weeks. Uh, The FDA has approved a new drug called Likambi or Lakanamab. And it it shows some marginal benefit for patients that have early or mild Alzheimer's disease. Uh, Medicare is going to cover that treatment. It's going to be very expensive, like maybe 25,000 or more dollars per per year. Uh, And Medicare is separately talking about expanding options to image patients, my specialty, both to help in the diagnosis as well as managing treatment and outcomes in these patients. And as if that's not enough, earlier this week, as I mentioned, an important new study came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association, we call it JAMA, uh, showing yet more evidence that this new class of drugs, which is antibodies directed at amyloid deposits, those are tangles of proteins in the brain, uh, that it does seem to impact outcomes favorably. It's not just treating the finding, it's treating outcomes. Patients do seem marginally better. Six million people in this country have Alzheimer's and it is a major contributing factor to death and disability. We recently had a guest, a friend of yours, a cardiologist, talk about his personal experience with Alzheimer's and it is a topic that touches almost every family often closely. Denanimab is the monoclonal antibody in this week's JAMA. And after doing a randomized controlled trial of 860 treatment and 876 placebo patients over 76 weeks, not an inconsequential length of time, results indicated a slowing of cognitive decline equivalent to four and a half to seven and a half months. And what that might mean is that if somebody was going to become uh, you know, significantly impaired by June, instead, this might decline that. uh, delay that decline to December or November. There were meaningful improvements in the actual amyloid deposits in the brain as measured by PET imaging and true clearance of these deposits, meaning just gotten rid of them in a large minority of patients. It's not known if these findings are sustainable once you stop treatment. Uh, But ongoing trials will help answer those questions. The impact on outcome is not without risk. Some patients died probably due to the treatment. uh, And many other patients had side effects that could have been worse if they didn't stop using the drug. The weight of the evidence suggests that the greatest benefit accrues to really early treatment. So what can we say? A few quick things. One, this is adding to the evidence that we can positively impact Alzheimer's disease measured by clinical outcomes and imaging findings, and earlier is better. Two, we will likely see greater screening for earlier disease and many, billions of dollars, much more than I think is being reported, much of it coming from Medicare for these drugs and the associated imaging that will accompany it. Uh, and I think we're talking about $10 billion or more a year uh, at the beginning, and it'll be much more toward the end of the uh, decade. We are just entering this era. One drug approved, another that seems successful, and others in the pipeline. And, and the last big point, in addition to these drugs being expensive for Medicare, and the beneficiaries' premiums, they will also be expensive for patients with co and deductibles being quite, quite consequential, maybe $5,000 for a Medicare beneficiary. This is going to worsen disparities if we don't do something separate to accommodate that. And as a side note, there is an editorial that reminds us that this particular trial disproportionately underrepresented Black and Hispanic patients. So my take home, this is going to be one of the most consequential areas of diagnosis and treatment in the next decade. I think it's going to require patients to carefully consider risks and benefits, uh, particularly for those that want to be early entrants. But it is always good news to have real hope about a horrible disease.
0: So I agree with you. It's always good to have hope about a terrible disease. Look, there are lots of issues here, Howie. As you know, vis-a-vis our discussion in the first part of this segment about volume, now there's going to be an amazing incentive for medical centers throughout the country to start you know, identifying mild to moderate Alzheimer's, mild, mild, Howie. that's, you know, it, you know how difficult that is to identify and how dis- entangled that can be with 100%. depression. And then Medicare just lifted the restriction on the number of PET scans that you can get for which you can be reimbursed as part of this. So that exactly. this is going to start building mills where people are going to be start doing this. So that might be a good thing. And I'm going to say, I'm not an expert in this field, but as I read this trial, I just wondered about it. So 1736 people, actually finished the trial. They're looking at an Alzheimer's disease rating score that ranged from zero to 144. Zero to 144, lower is worse. And at 76 weeks, now that's far into treatment. In the the treatment group, there was a negative six point. uh, So there's six points decline. Again, lower is worse. And in the placebo group, it was nine points. So range is zero to 144. And in, in the one group that was treated, they went down six points and the other group went down nine points. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not, again, an expert in these scales, but I'm just wondering how perceptible that is to people, how meaningful it is to people and what it's going to do to their resources and what it's going to do to the healthcare care system. It may all be worth it. And it maybe that next generation drugs will show much better benefit. But, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble. I need to spend more time wrapping my head around exactly
1: now what you and this i means. are 100% aligned on this i mean it's you can't yeah you can't stop this train but we're 100% aligned like i'm really worried about you know what are we crowding out when we spend 10 billion dollars a year on just this thing which has such little benefit uh, but I recognize that I just, people I, need help, And I'm,
0: I'm all in on actually continuing this. It's a big deal, but I just feel that we're going to need a lot more research to understand. And then the question will be, Howie, what happens in the real world with this thing? Because this is within the best case scenario of a clinical trial. So there's just going to be lots to learn here. Lots to learn.
1: You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter,
0: I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's Yale,
1: And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us at health.veritas at Yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu slash e-m-b-a.
0: Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management and the Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers, Ines Gil and Sophia Stunt, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They are extraordinary.
1: you are very fortunate.
0: Talk to
2: you soon, Howie. Thanks
1: very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.